Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hi, and welcome to another episode of In the Break Room with Bill. And and today I um, am so very lucky to have convinced my partner, Karen Marlowe, to stop by the break room to talk about restrictive covenants. I know that this is a little bit different than uh, all of the COVID overload information that you've been getting recently, but it is a little bit of an offshoot with COVID because there are, are folks who are out there and clients and uh, other companies and organizations who are really setting new standards and new policies and new procedures. And as part of those, we see employees who are being more and more selective or concerned about things that are being implemented and maybe wanting to jump ship, or some employers are seeming more attractive than others, and employees are trying to to maybe make more money and, and moving over to those employers. And it's just so important that we understand both on the receiving side and the side of, of when an employee is leaving that we check and see if those folks have any restrictive covenants because they can get us in trouble as employers, both when they come to us and, and certainly when they leave us. Um, we want to make sure that we're protecting our, our substantial and material relationships with clients, all of our confidential proprietary information, and then our relationships that we have with our employees. So I thought this would be a great idea um, to talk to Karen. She and I both practice in this area quite a bit. And uh, maybe talk a, a little bit about the details of what's been going on, especially in light of recent events. So, Karen, hi, how are you? And thank you for stopping by. I'm fine. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, you're very welcome. And, and it's me who is really thankful because it really does nothing but help our clients understand the, the current environment of what's going on. I'm so glad that you could be here. You know, one of the things that I think is so important uh, when we're talking about this stuff is is we have to look at the current environment. And, and you and I talked about this a couple of times before, but let's talk about it with our audience. President Biden has basically said, I want to curtail non-compete agreements, right? I want the workers to be able to move from employer to employer and not have these impediments. And and so we've seen some states that are following up with with this um, imperative states that have started even before President Biden came in and, and asked the FTC to consider working with uh, with companies and organizations and issuing directives on non-competes. But we see states trying to curtail these activities, especially and probably appropriately so with low wage earners. What are your thoughts on those things? Sure. You know, I think a lot of this started to happen way before Biden came into the office. And you would see some of the more, I guess, more of the liberal states, um, you know, starting with California, start to take a look at these kind of agreements and see what, whether the restrictions were appropriate and what kind of limitations they could put on the restrictions. And I know California comes to mind when most people think about this kind of stuff, but it's not just California anymore. And there are a lot of states that have made changes to the way these can either be implemented and enforced, including everything from what kind of consideration is appropriate, when the agreements need to be offered, what kind of enforcement mechanisms are in place. And I think that makes it either more or less interesting to certain employers, especially given this current environment. And now with Biden coming in and 
looking at addressing what he's referring to is unfair use of non-compete agreements. You know, I think it'll be interesting to see where things go with that. Well, you know, I agree. And you mentioned California and and I'll say everything starts with California, right? We we often see so many laws implemented and, and uh, things tend to start out west and move east. But but I will say this for California. I mean, California, if you truly do have something that that is a trade secret, that is something that that is independently valuable and you've taken measures reasonable under the circumstances to protect that information, California will enforce those obligations. It's when you start to get outside of those obligations and try to move towards those traditional non-compete agreements where you're just simply prohibited from working for a competitor, which so many states are now taking a closer look at. That's when California is going to say, no, we're just not going to enforce it on that basis. But if you can tie something to the use and disclosure or threatened use and disclosure of a, of a trade secret, then California will will absolutely enforce that. And, and you mentioned other states where additional consideration may be required. Massachusetts, for example, comes to mind where they talk about it. It's not a term this, but it's what we refer to in the non-compete community as a garden clause. That is, we're going to pay you something while your your non-compete period is running. And it has to be something substantial uh, while the non-compete period is running to tend your garden, so to speak, so that you, you don't have to, you can't work for a competitor, but we're still paying you some type of consideration in order to ease that burden and uh, try to give you a, a nice opportunity to move into new employment that wouldn't be in violation. And so we're seeing a lot of states do that. And like I, I mentioned earlier, the low wage workers, so many states and, and a lot of states have set the thresholds for this. These are the, the delivery guy non-competes that I'd like to refer to them as folks who are earning very little money. They may work for a QSR, a quick service restaurant or a subjoint or somewhere else, not making a whole lot of money. And they have a non-compete to, that, that they won't compete within the city that they're working in. And, and courts have uniformly come down and said, look, you've got to have some protectable business interest in order to enforce that particular kind of non-compete. Again, for that handful of states that still allows non-competes like Florida. Yeah, I think you make a good point. And I think it's also important, not only you know for lawyers, but also for our listeners and all employers, that we understand what we're talking about when we say non-competes. Because I think a lot of people use that term to describe a broader area of, of restrictions that I would just refer to as restrictive covenants. I think when we talk about non-competes, we're talking about a very specific limitation on what someone can and can't do post-employment, whereas a lot of those things can be accomplished using other restrictions, like the trade secrets you mentioned and restrictions on use of confidential information, which is covered by state and federal law, and also non-solicitation restrictions, which could cover the solicitation of clients. It could also cover the solicitation of employees. And depending on the state you're in, that could go as far as vendors, suppliers, or a lot of other third parties that might be really important to your business. In Florida, especially referral sources come to mind because there's been a lot of litigation in Florida on the disclosure of referral sources in non-solicitation agreements. And and that's something that we've seen a lot of case law on. And by and large, I believe the courts have said, look, if referral sources are listed and those referral sources are independently valuable, that is, lead to a protectable business uh, product, then we're going to enforce that prohibition on 
uh, soliciting referral sources as well as soliciting prior customers. And so, so I, and, and I want to get to Florida because I want to talk about some of the, you know, the, the four major things that we talk about in Florida with regard to enforcement. But I also wanted to, to get your opinion on something, and, and I'm going to give you my opinion and see what you think. I mean, you and I have practiced in this arena for, for many years, and I will tell you as an employer, the most important thing you can do is, A, make sure that your agreement is enforceable in the jurisdiction where you want to have it enforced. Some, some jurisdictions won't permit you to, to use a choice of law clause that, does, that isn't directed in that state where the employee worked. But my feeling on this is try to work it out, right? If someone hasn't left you and taken everything but the kitchen sink, and now you're thinking about, okay, now the employee's leaving and, and they've taken everything, well, that's that's probably a no-brainer, right? You get the computer, you find out that that individual has downloaded all of your confidential proprietary information, you're going to want to go and get an injunction to prohibit that individual from using or disclosing that information. But it, the, the cases that we get by and large mostly are, we hear that Joe has gone to a competitor and Joe had so much information, we're certain that he can't work for that competitor without disclosing that information or uh, threatening to solicit clients. And and my response to that is maybe call Joe up, try to work something out on the front end. If you're a CEO and you know the CEO of the competitor, maybe talk to the CEO first. It costs so much to move right into litigation and move into an injunction hearing. I always say, and, and, and you may disagree and I ask you to, to let me know, but I always say try to do what you can on the front end to hate those costs on the back end. I absolutely agree with you. In most situations, we really want those restrictive covenant agreements to be a deterrent to keep people from leaving the company, taking your things, going out and competing right away. And sometimes former employees just need a reminder. So I usually like to start off with some sort of reminder of obligations letter where we attach a copy of the agreement, maybe point out the parts that we feel are most important, possibly point out things that we believe might be uh, violated at the time. A lot of times that will do the trick. Sometimes we can even copy the new employer on those letters just to give the employer an idea of what's going on and the fact that our clients have taken notice. I think the most important thing with that is, is especially if we don't know for sure, we want to use verbiage in that letter that says, hey, if this is happening, you may be in violation of your agreement. I remember back in the day, every single one of those letters basically said, hey, you're a criminal and you're going to jail. I know you violated this and this is the activity that's been in violation and it could be criminal conduct and we're going to take you to jail. And and so everybody was in line for a big fat tortious interference claim. And so if, right. you, if you don't know, if you're not sure, you know, it, it, it's almost the roadhouse method, right? Be nice until it's time not to be nice. And, and send that letter out. Try to get Joe to respond so you can have a dialogue with Joe to find out exactly what Joe's doing and then make the decision as a company, an informed decision on whether to move forward, how to move forward and whether you need to seek an injunction. Right. And I know a lot of companies are worried that if they don't enforce the agreement to the fullest extent, every time there is some sort of infraction, that they'll be not permitted to enforce it 
sometime in the future. And that's not really the case, especially in Florida. You know, there's no real selective enforcement rules or laws in Florida. Really, what it comes down to is what do you need to do to protect your legitimate business interest? Sometimes that involves sending a letter. Sometimes that involves an injunction. Sometimes that involves a lawsuit all the way through trial. But as an employer, you are allowed to make that business decision to decide what's necessary. And that's what's interesting, especially about Florida. You know, Florida has its own non-compete statute, Section 542.335. And and that's for everybody who signed one of these agreements after 19, uh, I think it was 1990. It was 90 or 92. But either way, those are, it's pretty much 542.335 all the way now, right? When I started practicing over 20 years ago, you both statutes were in effect, 542.33 and then 542.335. And 335 is so explanatory and, frankly, employer-friendly. It, it says that you, waiver is not an argument against enforcement. And it also talks about attorney's fees and, and what actually is enforceable. And and so let's talk about Florida specifically, right? In, in Florida, we have to have a legitimate business interest supporting enforcement, but Florida will enforce those traditional non-competition agreements so long as they're reasonable in time and territory. And they'll enforce the non-solicitation agreements where it says you can't go out and solicit a prior customer. Now, Florida says with whom you had a substantial relationship. And so it does place a little bit of a handcuff on that to make sure that it's a legitimate business interest. And then it will also enforce a what I call an anti-rating. Other folks will call it another non-solicitation where you can't go out and solicit the folks that you work with on behalf of the company. And there's some case law that talks about, well, once those folks are gone, maybe that that, that prohibition lapses. And uh, other folks who say, no, you know, you can um, go ahead and force that against someone uh, certainly for employees who are working there and even maybe for employees who have left the, the organization. And then, of course, the confidential proprietary information and trade secret protections that are offered both under the, the non-compete statute and Florida trade secret statute. And don't forget about the federal statute that gives us the avenue to get into federal court that essentially mirrors the Florida trade secret statute. Right, the Defend Trade Secrets Act, which which has been, uh, as I've seen uh, since it's been passed, I have seen a lot more federal litigation. We were only seeing the federal litigation when we had diversity, that is, companies and, and individuals that were from different states. But that has opened the door to more uh, actions in federal court. And that, and Karen, that really brings up a good point and, and a point of strategy in these claims, right? If you're going to to bring one of these claims, and depending on how quickly you want to move. It depends on where you file it, right? If you file in federal court, federal court is very stringent and very quick to respond. So you have a a very tight schedule, especially if you're seeking an injunction that you can get an injunction hearing very quickly in federal court. And that is going to be decided on arguments and on the papers in state court. On the other hand, you can try as as hard as you can to get an injunction here. Of course, in these times of COVID, it makes it more difficult to get one very quickly. But your um, your injunction hearing is a little bit different. It's like a mini trial. You're actually going to hear witnesses and take witness testimony. And so uh, you need to look at that. And then the state court cases can pretty much last forever. And the federal court cases will have a date certain uh, for trial, even though those can be moved. Uh, it never will take as long as it does in state court. In fact, I'm, I'm on appeal right now in a matter and a non-compete matter that's been um, going on in court for seven years. And, uh, you know, we we think it's over after the trial, but nope, that just gives it a new life. 
you know, I'll tell you, I would agree with you from a pre-pandemic perspective, from a post-pandemic or during pandemic perspective, as a practitioner, I am noticing in federal court that there is a bit more of a delay. Now, I think that's mostly because of the backup uh, from when the courts were closed and running slower just because of pandemic issues. And I'm hoping that will eventually catch up. Um, But there are still benefits of being in federal court, specifically having a schedule. Definitely, there are some state court judges who will do it. Some of the local courts around here have special business sections of the courthouse that will give you some sort of scheduling order that will move things along. But I agree with you. Otherwise, in state court, it could be a really long time. Federal court, at least you've got deadlines and dates certain, and things tend to move at a set schedule. Yeah, and that, that makes sense. And let's let's talk about uh, the actual non-compete provision on, under Florida law. And Florida law is pretty specific, unless it's the sale of a business, which is a completely different context. And you'll notice in other states, they'll talk about non-competes in terms of sale of a business, where it's a little bit more of a lenient standard. But in Florida, unless it's in a sale of business context, Florida says that it, it's pretty reasonable anything for two years or under. I like to stick around the one-year Uh, Mark, I mean, information and relationships go stale after a period of time. You look infinitely reasonable if you're at one year or 18 months, much more reasonable than you look if if you're trying to enforce a three-year or even a a two-year, two-and-a-half-year, if the information you have turns quite often. That is, maybe it's the price of goods or price of materials, uh, especially in, in businesses like the construction business where materials may cost something completely different from day to day. And so Florida will enforce those as long as they're reasonable in time and territory. And, and territory is a sliding scale, right? Slide, it's at one end of the spectrum is if you are a really competitive business, that is, there's not a lot of competitors out there, maybe three or four in the state, then you can certainly justify a statewide restriction or even a nationwide restriction. I remember that there was an example of treasure hunters, right? There's not a lot of official companies that do treasure hunting in the world. And there was a a treasure hunting non-compete that was supposed to be enforced worldwide. And the court upheld that because there were only like three companies in in the entire world that were doing this. So it's a sliding scale. But if you're a, a bank, for example, and there are banks on every single corner of an intersection, then the court's going to be a little bit more scrutinizing of how wide that territory is. Maybe you'll get the city, maybe you'll get with a five or 10 mile radius, but make sure that you have a justification for that time and territory that you're trying to enforce. I agree. I think that these are very fact specific, not only to the business, but to the job. So depending on the industry that you're in, whether it's construction, whether it's technology, where it's changing constantly, I think you also have to look at the particular job that you're trying to protect. If you've got a vice president of sales who's responsible not only for the U.S., but also, let's say, North America and Asia, then it's very reasonable to have a restriction that covers those locations. If you've got someone who does sales, but only within a three-county territory, then a smaller restriction is going to be reasonable, and you can't necessarily expand that into the entire U.S. or entire North America just because you're doing business in those areas. That's absolutely true. And again, the wider the territory, the more difficult it is to enforce and the more evidence you need to show that this is a legitimately protectable business interest of the employer. And Karen, if you will, let's talk a little bit about the non-solicitation side of that. What are your thoughts with regard to enforcing non-solicitation prohibitions? 
Non-solicitation restrictions are my favorite, and I think they are easier to enforce than the non-compete. And essentially, if you write them correctly, I think they provide just as much coverage and protection to the client as a non-compete. Because if you are prohibiting one of your employees from directly or indirectly soliciting a customer, that includes everything from social media marketing to attending networking events, anything that's going to try and get that customer to bring business from the old employer to the new employer. And once you do that, it doesn't really matter if someone is at a competing company if they can't actually do anything once they're there. And I do think judges tend to be more open to that versus a more general non-compete that says you just can't work in the industry. I do find those to be easier to enforce, although Florida, of course, will enforce all of them. Here's the, the tougher question. The tougher question is, Florida says substantial relationships. You have to have had substantial relationships with a customer and the questions have come up so often. Well, whose substantial relationship is it? So the employee uh, works for the client for, for 10 years and, and certainly develops substantial relationships with a number of clients. And the prohibition is you can't solicit or service clients for a year of the company. And so the company certainly has substantial relationships with those clients. But if you put together a Venn diagram where they meet in the middle, not all the clients that the company has substantial relationships with are the same as, as the clients that the employee also shares those substantial relationships with. And so the question is, can the company enforce its own substantial relationships if the employee never had any access or never really had any contact with those clients? It really is going to depend on the kind of employee, but I would say that limiting an employee to not soliciting clients that they had any sort of working relationship with in the last two years prior to their separation from the company is usually something that a judge is going to be okay with. Now, if the particular employee maybe is managing 10 other employees who have their own independent relationships with those customers, I also think it's reasonable to enforce a restriction for that employee for all of those customers. Because even if they're not the one having the relationship, they're the one talking to the people underneath them about what they're doing to build the relationship, perhaps giving advice, maybe hearing what worked, what didn't work. And they're going to have more access to those people, usually than they'll admit once they're on the wrong side of the V in a lawsuit. And that makes perfect sense. And at the same time, you know, we can tie it as well to protected, confidential protected information, right? What if someone is an right. employee and only, only has access to those clients or has access both to the clients that, that that employee serviced, but also has access to the materials, the bid materials, the pricing materials, the uh, margin, especially and, and cost materials for bids that went out to other clients. And, and that employee may be prohibited from soliciting those other clients with whom the company has a substantial relationship because the employee had access to that we can prove up to that information that makes that employee a stronger competitor unlawfully. That's right. Now, if you have an employee who's maybe limited to sales, like we were talking before, within a certain territory that's maybe located in half a state, and that employee then 
leaves that state, moves to another state, and isn't interacting with the same customers, then you've got to get a little bit more fact-specific on whether that employee is violating the agreement. We've got to look at who they had contact with, um, who they might have had, maybe not relationships with, but access to the confidential information. There are certainly things that can be done as employees and new companies try and get around those restrictions but it really will come down to a fact-specific look at what that employee's jobs were with the company, which I think kind of leads us into something else that we've discussed a lot, and that is that there's not a one-size-fits-all for these kinds of agreements. I know a lot of clients really would like to have one agreement that applies not only for all employees, but employees in all states. And unfortunately, it doesn't work quite like that. No, and, and you're right, and, and that's what we talked about a little bit before. It's so important to tailor your non-competition, non-solicitation, uh, trade secret confidential information agreement to your business needs and certainly the time and territory that would be associated with the protection of that information. And and so let's talk just very briefly. There's a case uh, in Florida in, in the second DCA, which is where Tampa is, called Belasco versus Gulf Auto Holdings. This was a case where someone, this was in the the anti-rating provision, uh, non-solicitation of people that you worked with before. This was where uh, where someone came in and left a, a used car dealer and went somewhere else. And they enforced that agreement on the protectable interest of substantial training, right? They said, no, you know, we, we hired this guy and we trained him in the way that we wanted him to be trained. We didn't want him from another used car dealership because we wanted him to be trained a different way. And, and we provided this specialized training, which is another enforceable interest in Florida. We don't see a lot of those cases, but we, I, I think we're going to see more of them, especially with the tech business in Florida that is rapidly expanding. I agree. We have to be real careful with employee rating and how we're protecting that, whether that's through a non-solicitation or some sort of no-hire agreement, which can get into some antitrust issues. But I do think specialized training, especially in a gig economy where people are moving around a lot, specialized training and the money and time that employers are putting into training their employees really goes a long way in protecting your business interests down the road. I, I do think that we're going to see more of that, and I believe that they are going to be enforced. And along that same lines, when we're talking about you know protecting not only employees, but the information, here's where the confidential information really becomes so important. If you have folks that, that everyone in the company from the person at reception all the way through the president of the company has the same access to the same information, right? And But not everyone is signing a non-disclosure uh, confidentiality agreement, then you may lessen that protection for someone who does sign one who says, hey, look, I had access to that information, but so did so did Susie who left the company and went to a competitor and she didn't have one of these agreements because she wasn't at the level employee who was required to sign them. We want to make sure, and, and one, of the one of the prongs of the analysis is that we're taking measures reasonable under the circumstances to protect that information. So don't forget about the folks. If you don't have different levels of protection within your uh, electronic systems, make sure that everyone who has access to that information is signing those non-disclosure agreements. Because if you don't, it's going to make it more difficult to enforce 
those prohibitions. I agree. And I think at the very least, companies should really take a look at what their policies say in regards to protection of that information. Now, they're not enforceable. Handbooks and and company policies aren't enforceable as a contract, like the restrictive covenant agreement would be. But it does show that the company is taking steps to try and keep their information confidential. And hopefully that then rises to the level of a trade secret, but it does provide an additional level of protection. Right. And, and of course, with a trade secret, we want to prove that that information is is independently valuable and it was the product of, of a tremendous time or expense to put together. That's part of the trade secret analysis. And, and so as we talk about sort of closing this, give me some thoughts on maybe from a practical perspective, right? So from a practical standpoint, what do we want employers and our clients to know in order to be prepared for these situations? I think that they should take a look at their agreements now and really consider which of the employees need which kinds of restrictive covenants and get those in place. Luckily in Florida, employment or continued employment is sufficient consideration for these agreements. So it's not really going to cost employers a lot of money to get those agreements in place. And then we need to look at what we're going to do if and when there are violations, whether we're going to send out letters, whether we're going to go after them through injunctions or lawsuits, and be prepared. Because if you're not going to enforce them, then there's probably not a reason to have them. And we want to make sure that everyone's protected. Let's bring it back to this COVID environment. You know, folks, different employers are instituting different policies and procedures, and certainly the vaccination status is is a big issue. If someone is uh, uh, adamant about not being vaccinated and and that individual's employer um, is requiring it, maybe they'll find an employer that's not requiring it that would be competitive where that individual will try to, to sell his or her services to be an employee of that organization. And we want to be very, very careful about those things. Make sure that that, that information is protected. And, and a little bit of practical advice on the way in, when you take someone in, of course, we want to ask them if they have, you know, as part of our pre-offer letter, we want to get them to at least acknowledge and agree that they don't have any agreement which would uh, somehow inhibit or prohibit them from performing the services that, that they're performing for the company. And of course, that would bring up the idea of whether there is a restrictive covenant. And then we want to say, but we want to go further for those employees who may not be completely honest with us. Um, we want to say, look, if you do whatever you bring with you from your former employer, we don't want it. We don't want it on our systems. We don't want you to use it or disclose it in performing your job. We have enough information as this employer to let you do your job. We don't need someone else's information that could get us in trouble because you thought it was a good idea to bring a customer list. I think that's right. And definitely don't turn a blind eye if you think those kinds of things are happening despite all the warnings that you've given. It's just so important that we we want you to be protected. We want to make sure that the agreements that we're using are agreements that are reasonable in, in terms of what are the restrictions, what is the time limitation on the restrictions, the territory that is covered by the restriction. And I will tell you, the more reasonable that you are, the more reasonable the court's going to be. And, and, and the last thing that I want to say is the another practical point. If someone downloads information and refuses to give it back or acknowledge that it's been deleted or gives you the computer to confirm that it's been deleted and not downloaded onto another device. That's where courts are very, very deferential 
to these uh, protections of your confidential and trade secret information, that's the time that you really want to get in and get the court to prohibit that individual from using or disclosing that information. And the courts will do that. Injunctions are very difficult to get unless you show irreparable injury. And most courts will say if they've downloaded everything, including all of your pricing and margins and RFP materials, then that's probably going to be something that the court's going to shut down. All right. Well, I think we're uh, we're getting pretty close to the end of time. And, and Karen, I know you're busy and I really appreciate you stopping by the break room. Look, if anyone has any questions, please don't hesitate to call or email either one of us. We're happy to answer them for you. We appreciate you stopping by and, and, and spending a little time in the break room with us. And Karen, thank you again for, for your time and, and infinite expertise. Thank you. Anytime. Well, this has been another episode of In the Break Room with Bill. And thank you again to Karen Marlowe, who's in our Tampa office, along with me. And if you need any information, please let us know. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.